the phone went and it said, um, oh, there's the Home Office here. Would you mind going into the prison as soon as you possibly can and doing these tasks for us? I was trying to negotiate with the prisoners, but the noise from the, uh, an overhead police helicopter was so loud uh, we couldn't hear each other. So I went inside the prison. This is Mike Unger, a man who found himself at the heart of a story. On this occasion, the Strange Ways riots. But as the editor of the Manchester Evening News for 15 years, Mike found himself at the heart of quite a lot of stories in our city. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris. Welcome to this Sunday edition of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. And this week we hear from a man who's had his ear to the ground of our city for decades and has a stack of stories and experiences and reflections to share for it. Mike Unger was the editor of the Manchester Evening News for 15 years. He spoke to the Mill's Yoshi Herman about his life and career. So, Mike, tell me about your upbringing and how you first got into journalism. Uh, I was born in what is now Greater London during the war, and my father was in the RAF, so we moved all over the country and I had about eight primary schools. But I ended up in a primary school in the Wirral, where I passed my 11 plus rural grammar school. We had a lodger who happened to be a reporter on the Liverpool Echo and Old Evening Express, and we got on extremely well. I used to go out on stories with him and used to be his runner and messenger boy. We had lots of lots of good stories, and a couple of stories came out of rural grammar school. And so I, without realising it, I, was, I absolutely learned the tricks of the trade. So what kind of tasks were you doing with him? All sorts of things. I mean, one of the things I, the first things I did, we, he had to cover the Cheshire Show, which is a big agricultural event, and uh, he would do the main stories, and I would cover the dog show. And we came across stories. I mean, I remember we went to Hooton Airdrome, where the Vauxhall factory is now, and we saw a, a meteor plane crash in front of us. The interesting thing is I didn't want to be a journalist because of him. He was scruffy and poor. And I thought, he's in his mid-20s. What do I want to be like that for? You know. So I got a job. I went up to, there was a, a body then called the Youth Employment Service. And I went to them uh, and said, give us a job after I left school. They gave me a job running a hotel and taking people on walks across Dartmoor. And I did that for six months. And then the hotel closed for the season, so I was out of work. And uh, I wrote two letters, one to the Times and one to the Liverpool Daily Post, saying, I understand that you run training courses for would-be journalists. Please send me details. The Daily Post wrote back and said, no, you're not a graduate. You know, we, don't, we only take graduates. And the, the Times wrote back and said, well, tell us a story about yourself. So I told them about my journalism. I'd been a, and at school, I'd been a porter in a mortuary in a hospital. I'd been a clown in a circus and things like that. So I'd, uh, I had a bit of a story to say. So they said, well, we've still got no vacancies, but come for an interview at our training center, which was in Stockport. So I turned, I turned up in Stockport with all these other graduates, as it turned out. And I was interviewed and I was sort of asked questions like, what do you read and what would you do? How do you go and get a story? And I knew all these things. And they looked at me and said, can you start Monday? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so that's where I started on the Stockport Express. What was the Stockport Express like at that time? Wonderful. Um, the weekly papers in those days were actually quite influential. Uh, we had a really good editor whose name was Harry Evans, not the Harry Evans, another one, but he was a fabulous editor. Our news desk was full of people who also worked on the Mirror and the 
uh, and other national newspapers, we had an, a stunningly good start because they were graduate trainees. This wonderful mixture of experienced uh, old hacks and young thrusting people with bright ideas and full of energy, and it was great. So you went from Stockport to a few other newspapers. What, what brought you to Australia? Well, I went to Reading to be the production editor of the world's first computerised web offset colour daily newspaper. Uh, and I was only, how old was I? I was 21 at the time. And part of the job was that it was great. I mean, I had a lovely, lovely time again with some fabulous colleagues. Part of the job was to show people, um, because it was unique, we showed people around from other papers around the world. And one day, the, uh, an editor from Perth in Australia turned up and said, we want to do this in Australia. Come and join us. So I, I was a 10-pound pom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I was there nearly five years. And then, and then the Liverpool Daily Post wrote to me, the managing director, who I'd worked with in Stockport and Reading. He wrote to me and said, uh, you know, would you like to come back to Liverpool as, a, in effect, a, a junior deputy editor? We had two deputy editors. And I, so I, I turned up in Liverpool. Yeah, it, it, it sounds fantastic. A bit of a kind of heyday of, 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 of newspapers. You turn up at the Liverpool Daily Post. And at that point, it's a very big, very influential newspaper. And it doesn't cover Liverpool as such. It covers Liverpool and the kind of the whole of the world. There's a Paris correspondent. There's a US correspondent. Have I, have I got that right? It didn't cover just Merseyside. We also had, and it's still going, and people forget this, and we have a Welsh edition. So in effect, when I was editing the Daily Post, I was editing two newspapers a night simultaneously. I mean, everything had to change. The, you know, for sake of arm of the readers' letters, the um, TV guide, the sport. The most important thing in the Welsh Daily Post was the livestock prices, which would be anathema in the, in the Merseyside Daily Post. So we were doing two newspapers at a time. And when the Daily Post closed, it was only the Merseyside which had one third of the sale of the uh, of the Welsh edition, but you were right in as much that we had a we did have a Paris office for a time, and sadly, just after I arrived, they closed it down. In those days, these papers were very very powerful in their regions, and they were also powerful because you could not get into a national newspaper without having spent an apprenticeship on a lo on a regional newspaper. So, and we were apprenticed. I mean. We had a six-month probationary period and a two-year apprenticeship. And the only person uh, who broke his indentures, as it were, was uh, a man who became a jailed MP called Chris Hume. <laughs> he worked with he worked with you on the post, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. What was his What was his role? He was a trainee reporter, trainee journalist, graduate trainee. Um, but he was very pompous, very arrogant, and the staff, you know, the, his peer group hated him. <laughs> I remember walking to the, to the car park at about midnight one night with him, just the two of us. And I said to him, oh, you know, have a nice weekend, Chris. See you Monday. He said, no, I've, um, I'm, I'm resigning now. I'm, I'm going to join The Economist. <laughs> <laughs> and off he went and made his fortune. You later edited The Daily Post in Liverpool and you edited The Echo. I'm going to slightly hurry through those bits because we want to get to Manchester. But what was the rough time period where, where, where you were leading those great Merseyside papers? Well, I became editor of The Daily Post in 77, 1977. I left the, da the Daily Post in 82 to join The Echo for a year and then I went to Manchester. And the reason being was that I took the Daily Post controversially tabloid, which was unheard of in those days, and my managing director thought I was a stupid idiot. 
but we put on 16% of sale and saved the paper. As a result of which, I went to the Echo to turn that tabloid. And while I was doing that, in the process of doing that, the Manchester Evening News came to me and said, would you come to Manchester? Because although we've gone tabloid, it's a mess. And uh, we need somebody with your experience to turn it around. At that point, who owned the Manchester Evening News and how, how big was it as a paper? It was owned even then by the Guardian Group. I mean, it was, it was the Guardian and Manchester Evening News Limited. That was the name of the group. Because I was the editor of the, of the uh, most profitable part, I, I funded the Guardian, basically. Yeah. And, and give us a sense of what the MEN was like at that point, how, how big it was, that, where the office was, that kind of thing. Yeah, the office was in Deansgate, next door to the Rylands Library. And it was very central, obviously. It sold in those days, and it's a slightly false figure. It sold well over 300,000 copies a day. And it was false because they were still benefiting from the merger of another evening paper in Manchester. So the two, two combined had a sale of about 500,000. That obviously dripped off. And when I became editor, my peak sale um, was 325,000 copies a day, which meant that I had about a million readers a day. That's, it's pretty, yeah, that's pretty extraordinary. That is the sort of high watermark of, of those big city newspapers, isn't it? The 19, 1970s, 1980s. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I outsold the Evening Standard in, in London yeah, for a short time. When you're at the MEN and you're editing at this time when it has probably the biggest staff, it, you know, it's certainly a much bigger staff than it has now. What was your routine? Was it kind of like, you know, you, you would meet your, your executive team, your, your, t- your team of editors in the morning at conference? How did it work go? All the heads of department started at half past six in the morning, uh, including myself. I mean, the first thing we would do is that there'd be, you know, the news editor picture. They were all quite relaxed. And we sort of said to each other, right, well, what are we going to play with today? I, I don't mean that in the, in the trivial sense either, but what story is around that we know uh, we can make in something of? And we'd all listen. In those days, the BBC had a six o'clock summary of the news and weather and sport and things like that, so we were quite well briefed. And we sort of started playing, for want of a better word, with, with what we thought might be a major story of the day. And then my, that's so be 6.30 to 7.30 sort of thing. And then at 8.15, Eight o'clock, I would have a heads of department conference, not to discuss what we're going to do, really, but it was to discuss, it was to make sure that the left hand knew what the right hand was doing, so that the features department weren't competing with the news department on the same story. So it was really, it was only a 15-minute conference. But Graham Stringer was leader of the council at the time, and he thought that this is where we, we plotted council policy. He was paranoid about us. And I said, well, come to, come to a conference, you know, and see what we do. And he was shattered by the efficiency of it, if you like. We, did, we didn't discuss council policy. We didn't, need, you know, we didn't meet unless it was part of a story that we were working on during the day. Yeah. And Graham Stringer is obviously known as a council leader who sort of laid the groundwork for the, you know, Manchester's re-emergence economically and, and Sir Richard Lees's reign. But what was Manchester like when you took over the MEM, which is early 1980s, isn't it? Yeah, uh, took, I took in, in 1983, yeah. It was run down, poor, desperate, but not in the same league as Liverpool was. Liverpool was awful in those days. And I remember Geoffrey Howe saying, well, we, sh- we sh- should let Liverpool die. But there was an energy about it. There were some good people around. 
I remember walking through town with Stringer one day, and we, he was very proudly pointed out there's five cranes working in 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 Manchester, you know. <laughs> but we they they had a vision which we supported, having in effect trying to turn it into a 24-hour city, and that was you know unheard of in those days. I mean, there were no there were very few bars. There was a couple of good hotels, but they had a they had a vision for the city which Stringer led supported by Bernstein specifically. They were a very, very good double act and did very well. And one of the key things that Stringer did, because it's political, he, although he was a, a, a allegedly a left-wing councillor, certainly Labour, he made friends with the right wing, with the, with the establishment rather, the, you know, not necessarily Tory, but he made friends with the businessmen, the entrepreneurs. So when, for sake of argument, the bomb went off, uh, many years or 10 years later, there was a very, very good partnership already in place to rebuild Manchester. It was a very exciting time. And at that point, given the massive audience the MEN had, I mean, it was you were pretty much speaking to every single household in Greater Manchester with that kind of sale. Effectively, that must have lent you enormous power in terms of the direction of the city, the council wanting you to buy into things that they were doing. Tell me about that. Well, that's a, that's a good question, but I'm not too sure you'll, you'll get the right answer. Um, you didn't feel that power. To be honest with you, you were almost too busy uh, producing a paper. I mean, we did six editions a day, 96 pages, you know, it was a, and there were changes every all the time. But we were able to uh, constructively criticise anybody, uh, including ourselves, if we felt they were doing wrong or, or doing right. I mean, criticism can be a positive thing as well as a negative thing. We worked well. well. I, I didn't go around flaunting myself, as it were. Um, I am the editor, therefore do what I say. That's, that's totally wrong. I was there to represent the ordinary people, whether they are in Hume or Presswich or Altrincham or wherever. Uh, that was my job to be to be their representative on the paper, and uh, and that's what I hope I did. Well, I, I don't know whether it's other people to judge whether I did it correctly or pr properly, but I did my best. Yeah, Mike. A lot of our readers will know you from an article. I mean, I'm sure some, many of them remember your tenure on the MEN, but many of them will have read your article for us last year, October last year, about the Strange Ways prison riot, which happened in 1990, which you played a extraordinary role in, um, effectively going into the prison and negotiating with the prisoners because they kind of trusted you as an authority figure who, who could be a sort of um, fair, fair third party bit between them. Tell me a little bit about that. When did you first realise you were going to have to go in? Well, that's an important point. They trusted me. They didn't trust me, Mike Unger. They trusted the paper, and they were happy for. And they put, they put up a big sign saying media contact now. But was what was humbling and more important in many ways is that the press who were covering the siege this is only on the on the second day of it and there were still hundreds of press there they put my name forward i didn't know anything about this they thought that because it was the local paper and they could the prisoners would relate to it and i had a good reputation in their view um, that i should be the one to go in 
And the first thing I knew about it was when, at about 10 to 11 on the uh, Tuesday morning, the phone went and it said, um, oh, it's the Home Office here. Would you mind going into the prison as soon as you possibly can and, uh, and, and doing these tasks for us? And, and how, did, how did you feel about that? Because some people wouldn't want to go into a days-long prison riot, one of the worst prison riots in, in recent <laughs> British history. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be in there that long, to be honest. But what I, I mean, I didn't feel anything. I, this is my job. My job is to uh, reflect the, and help the people of, Mer- of Manchester. Uh, so I, I went, I literally put my coat on, walked outside, hired a taxi and said, take me to Strangeways. That's the most famous photo of you. I know you, you you get annoyed with me for using it in your articles, but it's that photo of you looking up. There are kind of um, roofing tiles from the prison, I think, <laughs> all strewn all around you. You're looking up, you're in that coat, and you're sort yeah. of pointing at a, at, at a window. And yeah. um, well, I was pointing at the, at the prisoners on the staff. But the important thing, as you said there, is the coat, because the prison officers wanted me to put on protective gear. And I said, no, I'm, ref- I'm not doing that, because that makes me look like a prison officer. And that, that's absolutely not what I'm here for. And um, so when I was pointing up and there was bricks and showers and all sorts of things coming, showering around me, I was trying to negotiate with the prisoners. But the noise from the, uh, an overhead police helicopter was so loud that we couldn't hear each other. So I went inside the prison. Yeah. And, and there was this one particular bit of your piece where you talked about meeting a, a prisoner called Eric Bell, a, a, a young man who had basically been telling prison officers, if anyone, if any of them come anywhere near me, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to kill you or, or, or I can't remember exactly what he said. But well, he, they didn't say that, but he, he was terrified. Eric was a nice man. And I think he was the one whose wife had just given birth to a baby. But what they were was, if they, I mean, a lot of people had given themselves up on day one and day two. But there was a, some people were terrified of giving, including Eric, were terrified of giving themselves up because they felt they would be abused by the prison staff as they left the prison. Um, So they wanted me to watch them go into the exit yard where they had to strip down and uh, shower and put and do do all the other bits and pieces uh, before they got into a police van and uh, where ironically they were abused. And and something that really comes across in the piece you wrote is that you had a real empathy for their position the, the conditions they were kept in there was physical brutality there was misuse of this drug drug uh, largactil um terrible food and 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 you you could tell that there was something to their protest yeah absolutely i mean you only had to see i mean i i was looking inside sh- um cells and all the rest of it uh, the prison governor who I thought was weak um, beyond, and prison officers thought was very weak. He said it was an explosion of evil. It actually wasn't. It was an explosion for dignity. They had, they were prison officers, the prison governor, although he was meant to be a, a, a good liberal governor, he gave them no dignity whatsoever. And the man I know was the prison governor at Walton in Liverpool. And he said this governor did more harm uh, than good. He, it was he that brought in the civilian running of prisons. Uh, he, had, he had no empathy. I, mean, I was in there 12 hours, and I saw him once for about four minutes, five minutes. He wasn't going around. He wasn't helping his staff. He was, he was like a rabbit in headlights. Yeah. It's perhaps a bit of a tangent, but 
it's a, it, the, the piece you wrote was unusual because it was a bit of an insight into inside prisons, which we never get. It's just an it's a black box. It's a, it's it's kind of it feels like an area of society that journalists should spend so much more time on, and there's so so much indignity, and yet we never hear about it. No, quite. I've been in in four at least four prisons now. My my big regret because I rushed out, I didn't take a very small camera with me. And, and our mobile phones weren't smartphones in those days. We had no cameras on them. Now, if I'd openly um, produced this camera, I, they would have kicked me out. But uh, towards the end of my day, they said, we'd like you to go into the remand section uh, by yourself, because uh, we were very proud of it. And I went into this new prison, in effect, within the prison, and it was utterly, utterly wrecked. I mean, it had it had all the things for young prisoners, you know, uh, telephones, TVs, good beds, proper, you know, dignified uh, bathrooms, and they'd been totally, totally wrecked. And if I'd taken, had been able to take a picture of that, it'd have been completely different. Why? Why do you? Why do you wish you had taken a photo of that? Because it would have shown the outside world what the conditions were like. It was appalling. It was, it was tragic. And the prison officers knew that. That's just why they wanted me to go in there by myself. Yes, very interesting. I'm going to fast forward to the other big incident, the other big day you've written about for The Mill, again, brilliantly, a few weeks ago now, which was the anniversary of the IRA bomb in 1996. I, I sometimes say IRA bomb in Manchester, but as your piece pointed out, there were a couple before the 1996 one, but the 1996 one is perhaps the most famous. You've written movingly about that day and, and, and how your team responded. But the really interesting thing about what you wrote was kind of the enormous role that the MEN had in the rebuilding of Manchester and then the decision-making about. Tell me about that. that. Yeah, I mean, that was a very important part of our representing the readers again. I mean, you know, we had a million readers even in there. And of course, the sales, as I said in the piece, the sales rocketed because of that. Uh, and we felt that we had to play a critical but constructive part in the rebuilding of Manchester. That started off really by me devoting the whole of page two every day to the myriad of hotlines and support lines and advice given and roads closed, all that sort of boring detail, which is very, very important to the readers. As a result of this, uh, we launched an appeal for money, which was uh, very, very successful. We launched the appeal for Major to get off his bum and do something, uh, which he did. He sent Heseltine up. And I wrote um, enough quite famous letter to him saying, you know, just because there's nobody dead doesn't mean to say we're not injured and uh, and so on. And it was it was good. Yeah. Now, you left that job before the kind of era that we're in now, which has unfortunately been an era where regional newspapers, local newspapers have been declining, shedding staff, limiting what, what they do more and more. When was it that you actually left? And did you see the beginning of that process before you left? The answer is yes, I did see the beginning of it because I was having my own internal battles, which I'll mention in a minute. But I left in April 1997, <clears throat> but the internet was becoming um, more and more popular. And a good, very good friend of mine was the professor of, in effect, the professor of internet at Manchester University. So I was a bit ahead of the game because he was talking to me. And when he first talked to me about it, I hadn't a clue what he was talking about. 
But then I decided that we had a very good business um, pullout every day on pink paper. And I thought it would be a, quite a good idea if we could somehow get that to businessmen very quickly, i.e. before they could buy a paper. Uh, we devised a way, we hired some people who went on to become very famous in their own field um, to, to do this. But we, I fell out with the board. I mean, not there's no reason why I left, by the way. I fell out with the board. I thought that if these people, if these rich businessmen and solicitors and people like that, they're going to get the paper in effect 45 minutes before you could buy it on the street, they should pay for it. And uh, my colleagues on the board, the, the non-journalist ones, said, no, it should, should be free. And I said, I said, no, this is nonsense, you know. I mean, I know it's a small thing by today's standard, but in 1995 or whatever it was, it was a big thing. So you kind of saw a preview of the big strategic mistake, that, well, in my mind, a mistake, of, of, of that period, which was local and regional newspapers started giving away all their journalism for free. And we, and we can obviously see the results now. But you, you saw an early version of that. Yes. Full stop. Yes. I wanted I want them to pay for what they could get efficiently and earlier than the average reader could, and my board said no. What a revolutionary idea, Mike! That uh, journalism <laughs> that co that costs us loads of money to produce and loads yeah. of care should actually be paid for like every other product. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, they're getting a a deluxe premium product for nothing. That's just nonsense. And they could afford it, which is the important thing. I sort of don't like to do this, but we have spoken, me and you, in, in the past about the, the state of the industry. And obviously, I take an interest in yeah. it because I'm, I'm trying to do something in, in the industry and with, with local yeah. journalism. But what's been it like watching the industry since you retired, particularly these great regional newspapers, two of which yeah. you, three of which you ran, and, 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 oh. and what's happened since? It's frustrating because at the end of the day, Journalism is journalism. It's good reporting, good stories, good writing. And what we're seeing now is in many ways, I was thinking this morning, it's a little bit like the old Chinese posters on a wall. You know, you're getting bits all the time. Now, I don't disagree with a bits culture at all. But a good, as you will know from your stories, you know, in Liverpool and Manchester, um, good, good in, um, research stories, good investigative stories, uh, still, in many ways, the bread and butter of the world. What frustrates me is that the um, bean counters were taking over. They didn't want stories. They didn't care. They wanted to know, even in my day, well, how many stories does he or she produce a day? You wrote a, uh, a, little, um, a little sort of, uh, I guess, a commendation or a little piece of writing about when we launched the Post in, in, in Liverpool. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. you said something which I just want to quote and sort of get your reaction. You said... The media has gone through massive internet-based change in the past few years, which has allowed the post, i.e. Um, our post, um, to launch yeah. and to thrive. Too often today's traditional newspapers follow a clickbait philosophy merely to stay in existence. This in, in existence. This leads to trivial stories and the unchecked publication of press releases. 
Yeah. There is now so little real journalism with the reporter stuck to his or her desk. You just mentioned there like this kind of increasing thing of we just need to get people to write more stories. It just needs to be more yeah. volume. That seems to be the philosophy of a lot of these newspapers now. I actually spoke to a football writer on one of those Reach papers who said every time I go to a press conference, let's say it's a Man United press conference, the, the yeah. morning after an, an irrelevant game in the Europa League, I have to write three different stories about it. I can't just find the, the most interesting angle. I have to write three and I I said, why? It's like, because that will get the most traffic if you try three different angles online. So you're having really? to concoct absolutely ludicrous, tenuous pieces um, from, yeah. from the press conference just for, for the sake of traffic. It seems crazy. Just sad, isn't it? And that's why you know, there, there is absolutely a role for good quality uh, website publishing like yours and, and other people's who should remain nameless. But, uh, you know, there is a need for this because you ain't getting it in the daily paper. I, I mean, I live in the Wirral, sort of halfway between Chester and Birkenhead. In, a, I've got no news agent in, the paper, in, in our town of 15,000 people. B, I um, would have to go to a, a supermarket, Sainsbury's or Tesco's or somewhere, to buy a paper. They don't sell the Echo at all. And that's appalling. There's no way, I mean, up to a point, I mean, I'm saying this blindly, but up to a point, it's relevant, because when I've been to Manchester, uh, Piccadilly Station, for sake of argument, I couldn't find a, a Manchester Evening News. They're not out there selling the paper. They're just, you know, just they're blindly doing clickbaits, and then, you know, get, get your, news aid, your news boys out selling the paper. Do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a slightly depressing place to finish our interview, Mike, but I really did appreciate having you on, hearing your memories. <laughs> our readers have but absolutely Mike. loved your stories. Mike Unger, or Michael Unger, as he is on the uh, on our byline. We hope we'll get another story off you soon. Although it seems to be that I, I if I ask for things, now. if I ask for things, I never get them. But occasionally you pop up and, and, and just give me something brilliant. If I tell you something now, the best story I covered, you check it. It was the murder in the playground at Burnage High School. Ah. You've never heard of that, have you? No, I haven't. And are you writing it for the mill? I'm not writing it for anybody. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll look it up. Uh, um, Mike, thank you so much for coming on our podcast, and uh, we look forward to the, the next piece that you publish with us. Mike Unger, former editor of the Manchester Evening News, speaking to the Mill's Yoshi Herman on this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. You can read more from Mike Unger in the Mill. He's written two articles, one of which recounting that incredible tale of entering Strangeways prison during the riots in April 1990 and being one of the journalists who, as people fled the city centre during the IRA bomb, was one of the journalists who ran in. Some incredible reflections of two really iconic moments in our city from a man who has been at the heart of it. That's it from us on this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly. Don't forget to like and subscribe. You'll get us in your podcast feed every Thursday and Sunday. And you can subscribe for more brilliant journalism at manchestermill.co.uk. 